0: Hello and welcome to the Cultural Peeps podcast. My name is Ian Wealdon and I'm a lecturer in the School of Arts and Cultures at Newcastle University. This series is part of an ongoing project which explores different career pathways across the museum, gallery, heritage and wider cultural sectors. I really want this series to do three things. The first is to help early career professionals understand the huge range of ever-changing job profiles that now exist. The second aim is to help those professionals interpret job titles in the context of different venues and organizations. Sometimes jobs with the same title can be radically different depending on the organization. The third aim is to help listeners understand that the people that make up any field of work are all human, and that in turn plays a significant part in their unfolding career pathway and decision-making processes. A few caveats. The recordings that form the basis for the podcasts aren't technically perfect. They're often grabbed in busy offices and in between meetings, so you can frequently hear the everyday world of work whirring on in the background. Just a final note, these podcasts are edited down from longer conversations, but I've tried to keep in as much of the original content as possible. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Cultural Peeps podcast. I'm at Lancaster train station on the way back from recording today's guest, the freelancer Marge Ainsley. I've known Marge since high school where we bonded over a love of two things, art and Vic Reeves. Since going freelance in 2008, Marge has worked with a huge range of museums, galleries, heritage sites, libraries and theatres, helping them to build in-house expertise, better understand their audiences and evaluate projects and practices. Marge has previously been voted one of the top 50 freelancers in the UK and is a fellow of the Institute of Training and Occupational Learning, a member of the Market Research Society and the International Association of Facilitators. The first half of our conversation is about what it's really like to work as a freelancer across the museum, gallery, heritage, theatre and library sectors. We discuss different working practices and the pros and cons of working as a freelancer and how to balance the running of your own business with maintaining a healthy work-life balance. We also talk a bit about temperament and personality and whether anyone can really be a freelancer or whether you need a particular outlook or skill set to pursue that type of career. We talk a lot about definitions and job titles and how difficult the presentation of skills is within the freelance sector. This is something that's fascinating to listen to as Marge is essentially trying to balance attracting clients with specialist descriptions of her own skill set. There are some particularly interesting discussions here around the use of the term consultancy. We then talk about the value and issues around both MAs and volunteering, the latter being something Marge did quite a bit of alongside her postgraduate studies at what was then Sheffield Museum Trust. Marge talks about the Museum Freelance Network, which is a network she helps run and which aims to give independents across the cultural sector the opportunity to meet and share ideas. So if you are interested in working as a freelancer or even thinking about it, it's well worth checking that out and making some connections there. Links are in the description as usual. You might also want to take a look at Marge's blog. In there, she shares her experiences as a freelancer, giving tips and advice. So that gives a really nice oversight of the work that she's involved with. In addition to those sites already recommended, I've put links to as many of the other organisations and projects we cover in the podcast description. So if there's anything you'd like to look up, then that's a good starting point. Don't forget you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle at Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Career Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there is a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. That's it from me for now. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and find it useful. for joining me today, Marge. Could we just start with an, a description of the job that you currently do?
1: Sure, so um, I'm Marge Ainsley and I'm a cultural consultant, facilitator and trainer, which is a posh way basically of saying um, I'm freelance and work in the cultural sector and that's mainly with museums, libraries, galleries and archives. But I do um quite a bit of work with theatres, gig venues, performance centres,
0: art centres, that kind of thing as well. So what does that look like on a a day-to-day basis?
1: Oh, it can be very varied. So um, I'd say on any one day, I could be working for eight different clients, you know. Um, My work typically is focused on audience development, Um, visitor research and evaluation and um, comms work as well so copywriting copy editing kind of tone of voice that kind of thing so I have this big array of clients so like I say any one day it could be up to eight different clients working on anything from a marketing campaign marketing strategy audience development plan or it could be Um, going and doing consultation before a big capital project or it could be writing an advocacy document for a client but with being freelance as well you kind of have all the other non-client, non-billable work too so as well as all of that going on, you know, you've got to do all your admin, your finance accounts marketing yourself going to networking events um so there's kind of a lot of stuff behind the scenes as well and I as well as my freelance kind of client work I help run the museum freelance network so um I suppose that's that's something I would call a side project and we might talk about this a little bit more but freelancers have a lot of side projects on the go Um, and the museum freelance network is essentially a kind of A community that myself um, and and another freelancer um, started because we felt that there was no kind of support um, for freelancers working specifically within the museum um, sector and so we champion and um, lobby for freelancers working in the sector we shared jobs, uh, job contracts, we run an annual conference and have a whole kind of community on social media and run training as well for freelancers. So that's done on on a volunteer basis. So there's kind of that side of things going on.
0: You mentioned your job title at the start of that introduction. Is that a job title that you've developed? Mm. And is that something that's recognised in the sector?
1: Yeah, so this is a tricky one. And I still battle with what to call myself. And you'll actually find it's probably one of the hardest things. Not just museum freelancers, but freelancers generally have to kind of sort out. I've always been really wary of the word consultant and I don't like it very much actually and it's only in the last year so I've been freelance 11 years now last year year 10 I decided it was time to kind of um, look at my brand look at my values look at the type of clients I was working with and there's a whole process that went alongside that and previously I just call myself freelancer you know when you go to yeah. like Museum Association Conference or something, you have to put on your badge, why you? I'll just put freelance. Um, But it's it's really hard to describe what you do, especially if you work across different types of organisation, from theatres through to museums, different types of work in the cultural sector, from audience development through to copywriting there's not really a neat way of saying that and especially because I work with say libraries as well which aren't necessarily thought of as arts and heritage is it arts and heritage is it culture what what is it and so after this process last year I ended up kind of going down the consultant route for the first time and I think that's because I just finally felt like after 11 years freelancing and more within the sector as well that I kind of I felt like I could call myself a consultant. It. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, but there isn't like to answer your question. I don't think there's really a, a kind of a a, dif- a definitive job title that you give yourself as freelancers. And and on the museum freelance network training that we run, you know, there's a whole exercise we do with um, prospective freelancers and people who are freelancing just kind of under twelve months around. You know, what it is your offering? Being clear on what that is, and um, working out what you know the marketplace needs, and then you know well, okay, how does that translate? And I guess this year I've started becoming less worried about it. You know, sometimes I might go and describe myself as an arts and heritage consultant. Other times I might just introduce myself at a networking event as, hi, I'm freelance. I work with museums and galleries, or mm-hmm. a lot because a lot of my work I'd say about. of my work is evaluation and research. Um, I quite often will say I'm an evaluation and research consultant or freelance evaluation and research specialist in circumstances where potentially I may want to get some of that 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 work.
0: So you changed that title? Yeah, and I'm actually,
1: yeah, through the rebrand last year, I kind of got a real flexible outcome with that because, like, you know, on my business cards or on my graphics that I use on, you know, whether it's invoices or, you know, proposals for work, you know, I've got one that will say, Marjanes Lee, evaluation research, Mar Lee, mm-hmm. audience development, and so I can switch that up yeah. depending on my needs. And I've started, I think, to be less concerned about that
0: now. Is part of that because you've been doing this for eleven years, you're quite established in the sector, so people come to you because they know what skill set that you can offer. Mm. So the title is maybe less important.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think you don't necessarily need to have the title like if someone's going on your website it's kind of clear what you're offering anyway. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if you like more established then you become known for for the type of work that you do. The issue I've got at the minute is I'm changing what I am offering and I'm narrowing it that down a little bit so I'm doing less and less actually of the audience development and marketing work um, and that's to respond to kind of needs in in the sector you know actually we're, it, there's a lot around evidencing um, and so that's why the evaluation stuff comes in but um I don't know I think when you've been in the sector that long you you know you you know what your you know what you're interested in you know what the marketplace needs and and actually i think at the start i was doing so many different things i've had to reel that in and just be more specific about my offer and also when you're freelancing it's hard to kind of keep up with absolutely everything so for example when i went freelance in 2008 i was doing marketing and i was doing press and pr work so media kind of comms and very quickly i realized that you know, you you can't keep up with those contacts all the time. And it's really mm-hmm. important if you're doing press work to have those relationships with like media. And so I kind of knocked that on the head. Um, and it's kind of starting to feel a little bit like that now in terms of, you know, I don't typically get involved in digital strategy or digital comms work because... I just feel more out of the loop and you've got a yeah. constant... I, I'm a big believer with freelancers and I talk about this a lot when I'm doing talks or whatever about CPD because it's yeah, so a continual professional development because I think a lot of freelancers make the mistake of, you know, you're freelance, you'd like, you don't have a personal development plan, that kind of falls off, you don't have the time, you're too busy delivering, whereas it's so, so important to make sure you invest in, you put budget aside each year to invest in your CPD. So whilst you can keep upskilling yourself, there are certain things I just think, like the media example, you kind of just start losing those contacts and then you're not delivering that service well enough
0: for your clients. So you're doing more of the work that genuinely interests you or is that motivated by the work that's available at the moment?
1: Yeah, I think, it's, I think I'm at the point now where I can be a bit more choosy, I would say. Um, And again, um, within the last kind of 18 months, and and this has all come through working with a business coach, um, I've started being a little bit more, um, I suppose, careful in what I take on and work on... There's two things. Work on briefs that are... um, I screen them through a perfect client brief. Right. And that means, you know, do I feel, A, that it's, you know, something exciting, B, that I feel I can make a difference with, and C, is it going to pay the bills, you know? Like, there's probably maybe five or six different things that make it up, but essentially, you know, I'll screen it through that. And then the other thing is, does the client have the same values as me? You know, are they... You know, are they inclusive? Are they about, you know, paying their freelancers on time? Are they... So I would deliver the project on time. I'm very much about, you know, making sure... Those kind of values, um, you know, are they in alignment? Yeah. And that has only come through, like I say, through working with his business coach and, and, and doing more of that and trusting that actually is better to work with those type of clients than have... Clients where perhaps, you know, it, it is, it, it's a stressful project or it's just not aligned well. And then that affects your own health and well-being. Yeah. Um, so I don't think I could have done that at the start. And, you know, I'm not saying now that I wouldn't take on something if, the, you know, there wasn't the, the funds yeah. you know you, you you kind of need that you need that work to, to pay your bills um, pragmatic decisions pragmatic yeah. <laughs> decisions but also I think it's about and again I talk a lot about this is when you're freelance you have to think like a business and I think a lot of people don't do that um, so what I mean by that is you know um, 30% of every invoice that I get in goes in a reserve business account and that's to pay for my tax and my national insurance or NI at the end of the year but it also just acts as that cash flow buffer so one of the challenges that freelancers face is cash flow like any small business um, and so if you've built up those reserves over a period of time then from a financial perspective, it just gives you that little bit of flexibility when you are starting to think about, well, actually, you know, is this a p- perfect client brief? Do I really want to take this work on? Is it the right thing to take on? And there's an interesting play around, should I, yeah. could I do this piece of work? Um, so I think it's the business side as well that, that kind of informs that decision-making. Um I mean, there's all sorts of things around that, thinking like a business mantra, you know, whether it is the self marketing yeah. and, and all that kind of stuff. But certainly from a financial point of view, getting to that point where, you know, you're able just to have that comfort, how do you say comfort blanket, I don't know if that's the right <laughs> word, but you know buffer, what I mean? Okay. Yeah, that buffer um, behind is like just from peace of mind yeah. is really important. But it takes time to build that yeah. up.
0: So do you, obviously you enjoy the sector, you enjoy engaging with cultural material. How difficult it is it for you t- to draw lines between professional and personal, between business and things that you're interested in and, you know, oh, mm-hmm. I'm kind of just going to go with that because I really enjoy that venue or that yeah, place. Yeah,
1: it's, it's hard and it's always, you know, I think anyone in the sector, whether you're freelance or not, you say, is it a busman's holiday when you go, you know? <laughs> Um, Is it a, to, um, a museum? You know, <laughs> when you're on holiday. But um, I think there's something interesting with I don't I don't I don't know. It's I think it probably affects everyone whether you're freelance or not. But there's something interesting around the work-life balance as a freelancer, and and well, there's the business angle that comes in. So you know, for years I took the kind of Karen Brady approach of. Um, 24-7 you know you should have your mobile on um you should always be answering client emails you know within a couple of hours blah yeah. blah blah and actually it can be quite it can be quite tricky that in terms of you know negatively impacting on your mental health and not not really being very healthy in the way that you're in, in your business either i'm not saying that's you know you know some people will will want to handle it that way. So there's that kind of business aspect of always feeling that you have to be on. And then from the kind of the, the cultural sector, you know, way, if you are, you know, on holiday or whatever, and you're going around and you're seeing cultural places, you know, and we talk a lot about this in freelance kind of circles and networks, you know, there isn't really such a thing as that work-life balance because it becomes it's you, it becomes part of your interests and what you do. Um, And I've started not seeing it as like, like mutually exclusive in a way.
0: Mm.
1: And I just, you know, I enjoy going to, you know, museums, cathedrals, sites of interest whilst I'm on, on leave. Uh, And I'll gather photos and I'll gather, you know, you know, I've, I've still got in my wardrobe at home, a giant bag full of print that I've collected since probably, you know, 2001. And I'll reel that out at um, workshops when we're doing, you know, OK, let's look at brand and we'll look at tone of voice and, you know, this collection of <laughs> leaflets. Um, because it's just part of you and it's, it's hard yeah. and, like, to separate that. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Where I feel there's the issue is the business, the business side. And so taking real, you know, specific action to, to minimize stuff. For, for example, switching notifications off on your phone, sort of like taking email off on your phone, all those kind of things. But being upfront with clients as a freelancer at the start of projects. So for example, laying it down, saying, you know, this is when my leave is booked, or this is the way I work. And it comes back again to that values thing. So, you know, if you're working with an organisation and they are hot on, you know, staff, health and wellbeing and they don't want staff to be staying there till seven o'clock at night, I you yeah. come in at seven, then that also reflects in my values and the way I work with them. And so it's I lay it out very openly at the start that, you know, this is the kind of way I work. This is my availability. This is, you know, I won't... There's, there's an interesting discussion at the moment around say using whatsapp with clients yeah. and okay so is it all right to send a whatsapp at nine o'clock at night when you're just saying oh I forgot to tell you in that meeting today about this so that well
0: because it's non-conventional in the in the sense it's not email so yeah, it's, it's not it's email
1: somehow, and then it's after it's hours and yeah. so you know do do you get involved in that and yeah. again I mean we're, we're all you know, guilty of this i think with the social media and stuff like me and and the the colleague i run the museum's freelance network you know we're we're thinking of ideas and you know um my colleague has has children so she typically her working day is slightly different to my so she'll maybe start work at seven when the kids go to bed and um you know if there are, There's people um, listening to this who are interested in freelancing and they've got kids. a great um, network called Doing It For The Kids. And, and again, it comes up with that, like, well, how do you split your work day? And so this colleague of mine, you know, she's a lot similar. She'll split it and she'll start work at 7. Well, that means she's sending me stuff and often on WhatsApp going, oh, this is a yeah. great idea. Say, like, 10 o'clock at night when I'm, you know, I'm kind of on my downtime. And it, so what is... What is okay and what is not okay for a business? What are you prepared to do and when are you prepared to do it? But well, then that's one of the joys of freelancing and that's one of the things I really enjoy about it is that, you know, it is... it is I always talk about it as my own sweet shop, you know. It is your sweet shop. You, you know, you decide who you're working for, when you're working, your working hours, yeah. you know, what you want to put in and what you get out of it. But at the end of the day... It is a business, and if it all goes wrong,
0: it's, it's on you, yeah. you know. So do most venues and projects or institutions that you work with r- respect that and treat you in the same way in terms of working practices and those kind of rules about of office work that they would with their staff, or do they expect more of you? You know, Do they expect you to fit in with their timetables yeah. and their staff? Or? I
1: think it depends who it is, and I think I've experienced probably a bit of both. I think with certain institutions they'll expect more in a way Um, and so I don't know maybe like you know expecting an instant email reply Mm -hmm. or um, it it typically comes maybe not so much within the, the like the contract delivery it almost the where the expectations get a bit muddy is when maybe you're applying for a contract right. or the expectations around that. So there's so
0: there's that power, power balance thing where you might be trying to impress or please or...
1: No, I was thinking more along the lines of getting mixed up between what a freelancer is and what a f- kind of P-A-Y-E
0: right, okay. is
1: so there's, a, there's quite a challenge in the sector at the moment, for example, where we're seeing freelance jobs, which shouldn't, when I say job, it's not really the right word to use either, freelance contracts advertised when they should really be P-A-Y-E jobs. So um, there'll be, you know, a full job description. There'll be a, you are expected to be at this desk between these hours. Yeah. And all of these things don't, you know, they don't pass HMRC's um, test yeah. for is it a contract job or is it a full-time or part-time PAYE yeah, okay. employed um, role. And also, so for example, when you go for a piece of freelance work, not every time, but sometimes you're asked to go for a, an interview. And that word itself has connotations around, you know, PAYE yeah. like, jobs. And the interview is is a form in a format that it would be if you were going for a job at that institution, rather than please talk me through your proposal mm-hmm. as a freelancer and how you intend to deliver this piece of work. And similarly, when you're asked to um, put a proposal together, you might be asked to you know describe your methodology in there for something or if you're say like a, a design agency we'd want to see what you'd come up with for a logo and that's not right you know yeah. because then you're providing that work for free essentially so there's it's more that side of things I guess where there's that almost that not quite understanding what what freelancers are that's you know that isn't me moaning necessarily about that it's just I think there's a role for for us as freelancers to kind of Educate isn't the right word, it sounds really patronising, but to kind of share that knowledge with organisations about how to work effectively with freelancers, and and we have been doing that. So through Museum Association Conference, we've done, um, through the Museum's Freelance Network, talks and workshops around um, writing effective freelancer briefs. Um, My colleague's written a guide for Share um, Down, which way is it? I think southeast way about working effectively with freelancers that organizations can download online. Yeah. So that was funded by the the museums development officers. Um, so for us it's that it's that reciprocal kind of learning between freelancers and organizations about how can we work better collaboratively and together so that we can kind of out some of these things and there's the whole discussion of course around pay as yeah, well yeah. and and we've seen that around you know artist pay we yeah. but also freelancers who are working within within the sector too
0: so do you think that the opportunities for freelance have grown in recent years
1: mm. It's a, it's a tricky one. I don't know whether I've got any evidence to say whether it has or not. I've certainly not seen, like, a decline in freelancer opportunities. What I've seen is more people go freelance, right. um, And I think that's for various reasons. Again, we don't have the evidence to, to say why. Um, but I, th- I suspect part of that is because of the cuts. You know, people have just defaulted to freelance, perhaps when they didn't necessarily intend to they've kind of fallen into it Um, and maybe it is around you know the uh, flexible working you know when people starting to realise the benefits that that can bring um, you know to their family life home life whatever Mm. so um, I mean we're certainly seeing more people on this you know Museum Freelance Network training course that we run Um, we started that 12 months ago now and we thought well maybe we'll run one per year we have a maximum on that of 20 people come come to to us and um we thought we'll just do one a year and we we've already done three you know there's an appetite for freelancing um and you know we had quite a bit of kind of raise eyebrows a little bit around running that training course in terms of well you know you're kind of self-cannibalising. Why are you training other people to yeah, do what you do? Gosh. And and we very much took the decision that actually... I mean, the Museum Freelance Network is about collaboration rather than competition, yep. you know? We took the decision to, to run the training because we were being approached and asked constantly about how do you put a proposal together? You know, how do you get clients? Where do you find clients? How do How do you save for a pension all this stuff um so we decided that actually we might as well run these training courses um and deliver it and and have that that vehicle to to share that knowledge I mean we don't share everything you know we wouldn't share things for example like um you know our own approaches to how you write a proposal specifically but you know we've had some really great feedback from that course and that's kind of you know, encouraged us to to continue um, doing them. But it's things like that where you start seeing, actually, there is is an appetite. What we're lacking and what we're hoping to look into with the Museum Freelance Network is more research into um, museum freelancers. And I say museums, we're talking like museums, galleries, um, archives, because there's not really anything that... That apart from creative industries, there are creative industries reports around, you know, the number of freelancers, what they, where they are, what they look like. But there's been no proper robust study um, in the museum sector about the contribution that freelancers are making to the, the sector. Yeah. When we run our annual conference, we look around the room and say, well, actually, are we representative of the museum freelance workforce here? And we, are, you know, we don't know because we don't really know what that looks like. Yeah. Um, we don't know how diverse it is. We we just don't know. So we want to do a piece of work that will kind of tell us a little bit more about that. Um, and we're hoping that you know to have a a, a more, I suppose, um, visible seat around the table at things like museum association. Str- strategic development work like strategies, character matters, report workforce strategies, all that kind of stuff. Because yeah. you know we don't always see the museums' freelance people um, represented or included in some of these strategies. Yeah. And that's like you know we're not finger pointing here. Um, and you know it's not not just the MA. It's um, like AIM, Association for Independent Museums, um, talking to. Um, membership organisations like the Arts Marketing Association, so the AMA, um, and just to kind of raise raise the profile of what freelancers are doing, be able to have a voice in strategic planning and that kind of thing, more than we are doing now.
0: So do you think that those sessions that you're running are contributing towards setting a bar or a standard, both in terms of how freelancers approach freelance work, but how institutions interact with and set the parameters around their, mm. their interactions with. Yeah, things. we hope
1: so. We hope so. Um, I mean, we had, you know, we've had people come up to us after the workshops that we've done for museums saying, "Oh, that's great. You know, we didn't know how to properly write a freelancer brief. That's given us a really good structure. So sl- let slowly, you know, by slowly, we hopefully we are making making a difference. But again. Yeah. You know, without that research, it's, it's kind of difficult, difficult to know. I mean, from a freelancer point of view, people are going away from this training, knowing about things like, again, thinking like a business, so what payment on account is. Yeah. So, you know, not a lot of freelancers realise that when they go freelance, you know, it's so long until you pay your tax bill that you, you know, HMRC ask you to pay half of whatever your tax bill is for that first year, you know, you pay half again in the summer and so like you're paying more than you perhaps think that you, you know, when you first go freelance that you're going to be paying out and it can catch a lot of people out. And it's like they're not little things, but little things like that, you know, just training people to be more business aware yeah, yeah. and, you know, setting that quality from the business perspective, but also I suppose from that branding perspective so you know being clear about what you what you know what you're selling who you are all that kind of stuff um so yeah i hope it is making a difference in that way
0: so this work has become professional and personal and those things seem to have merged for you so was this always the plan was there always a plan to be freelance within the sector or how did you think about your career when you were at school
1: yeah so i I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I did art GCSE and our A level. Um but I think the careers kind of guidance was so terrible. Um especially around creative subjects. Um you know, I didn't I didn't know what what the options were really apart from going to do fine art or going to do graphics. Um my parents weren't all that keen on me kind of pigeonholing myself into, you know, Art and um, so I ended up going off to uni and doing English language and t- taking art history, right. taking that forward. And I think you know, I, I suppose if anything, I thought maybe I'd be like a visitor tour guide or something like that, showing people around. Um, and when I finished, I was at Lancaster Uni. When I finished at Lancaster, I remember very vividly looking through The Guardian. You know, that's what everyone did. He looked through Guardian Arts jobs. On a Monday. Yep. And uh, there was a job at Sotheby's and I thought, brilliant, yeah, that's the kind of thing. And I applied for this and then didn't get an interview. I was like, why haven't got an interview for this Sotheby's job? And um, I, I saw like my kind of friends who'd done art go off and you know do Masters in Fine Art or go and do um, gallery jobs. And I just... I just didn't know how to get there and do that or, or what that would even look like. Um, and I wish actually at the time that there had been better career advice for, for that kind of industry. And, you know, I'm very, very passionate now about going back and doing talks with students. And I do that quite a lot um, yeah. to just give them a sense of what what the museums and gallery sector and world looks like and what the options are. we um, <laughs> to probably talk about, about that later, but... So I left, I left Lancaster and ended up doing a whole array of interesting jobs. So I was um, a debt collector over the phone in a call centre, um, which is soul destroying. Um, I worked in another call centre selling Christmas chocolates. Um, and then funnily enough, the chocolate link carried on. So I ended up working for Cadbury's over in Sheffield um, and that was like a sales job meanwhile whilst I was working at Cadbury's I was looking more into how on earth do you get into the museum sector you know what do I need to do and it became very apparent at the time so we're talking 2001 at that time the only route in and unfortunately I think this is still the case in in, you know many institutions the only way to get in was to get a master's so I didn't want to move um, too far from Sheffield. Sheffield had an Arts and Heritage Management Master's, so I ended up doing that, and um, going in hilariously as a mature student at the age of in my early 20s, and uh, absolutely loved it, um, worked like doubly hard, more harder than I had at my undergraduate, and I... Um, Luckily, picked up two volunteer jobs, one at Sheffield Theatres and one at Sheffield Galleries and Museums Trust, as it was then. It's now Museum Sheffield. <clears throat> and I worked as a volunteer alongside my Masters um, and alongside a part-time job at HSBC as well. And it was through that that I fell into the marketing side. So they just happened, those volunteer jobs, to be in the marketing departments and both... Really? So I learned the ropes um, as, a, as a marketing volunteer, got involved in things like the Arts Marketing Association. Um, and luckily, the marketing assistant job at Sheffield Galleries came up just as I was finishing uh, my MA. So the MA at Sheffield was quite different to other ones. You studied a whole array of like business stuff because it was management, so it was like economics, law, finance, marketing. Um and I just was on the like the last placements of all of that and this job came up, so I was writing up my dissertation and going into work full time, which was hard, but I was really lucky to actually get that like got that
0: job. Yeah. <clears throat> so from so you've got kind of a few things that have happened there. you, you knew that you wanted to do arts related stuff. So can you pinpoint if we go back a little bit why you wanted to kind of go down that route. Was it something that you were good at at school? Or?
1: No, I wasn't very good at the actual art itself, but I loved the art history side. Right. Um, yeah, I was never any good, really, at the, the drawing and the painting. Funnily enough, <laughs> I was better at photography, and that's what I'm doing a lot in my spare time of at the minute, um, but I just never pursued it. But it was art, the art history side, really... And it was, it was, like...
0: So was that A-level?
1: Yeah, so... It's, un,
0: un, it's unusual to do anything other than a kind of quite cursory art oh, history is near, at GCSE.
1: Yeah, we... Uh,
0: well. Or at uh, that time.
1: Yeah, there, there, was, there was, like, just normal art at school, and then going into A-level, that's when we picked up the art history element, and we went on those trips. So, you know, we went to um, London, we saw the... Cezanne show there. I think about what year that would have been now, but um, just I think, and I'll still I'll still go back to those days now. If I'm having a, perhaps a bad day in the office, or you know, you question why on earth am I doing this? You know, right. sometimes like I think we probably all do in our jobs, um, one stage or another. I will go back and I think a lot of people do about why why did I start like. Like my career in in the arts, and actually thinking back to those amazing shows that we visited, or if you're working in theatre, people say to me that just that performance I remember seeing when I was sixteen, and you just like return back to that, and I think it's that that inspired you to to do what you do. Like I remember, I'll just think back like, oh my goodness, like Howard Hodgkin exhibition. Just thinking, man just being really struck. Rachel Whiteread, House, you know, just like all that kind of stuff. Definitely. That, for me, that's probably the pinpoint, actually, um, those trips, seeing that work so first hand. Yeah. And, and even now, you know, um, like I was at the Peer Arts Centre um, in Stromness in Orkney last week, and just that feeling that you get sometimes in a particular institution or seeing a particular work, you know, for the first time in the flesh as well, going over to MoMA and seeing some of the Van Gogh, you know, um, work over there thinking, oh, this is amazing. And just hanging on to that and remembering that that was why you did it in the first yeah. place.
0: Um, so were there people that were steering you at any point now? You were saying that mm-hmm. you folks were maybe trying to get you to spread spread the risk by the sound of it a little yeah, bit. So yeah. were there people that were, even if they might not necessarily have been indicating a particular career path that were influential in developing those interests?
1: Yeah, I would say probably not so much at my master's level, but my A-level tutors were, I would say, significant in terms of that. So just that kind of again that enthusiasm and that passion they had for art history and for for the arts um you know and i'm still in touch with them now like however yeah. many years on and that you know a level for me was ninety five, nineteen ninety six, 1996 that kind of time yeah and so you know i suppose that shows you something now you know when you have one of we all have our kind of teachers at school that we yeah. think of influence whether we've chosen a particular subject or not, but they were definitely influential. Um, and then I would say a particular, just thinking back actually, there was um, a chap who was a visiting lecturer on our master's programme who just had a, a real connection with in terms of like the marketing side. And again, I think that just bolstered why I ended up going down the doing marketing wonderful. route.
0: Yeah, yeah. So when you were at university, you did. doing... English with art history, those two things together. So were you thinking of the same way spreading, not knowing quite what you wanted to do, but spreading the risk a little bit between two subjects? Yeah,
1: and, you know, I kind of... I didn't really tell you the full story, there with how the art history came in, because I didn't apply to do art history at uni and my undergrad. So at Lancaster, I don't know whether it's the same now you had to choose three subjects when you went. So I did English language, linguistics, and this random, randomly named, <clears throat> excuse me, randomly named subject called culture and communication. And then you dropped, you could take two on or drop two and take one on. And so in my second year, after doing all those three, it was like doing A-levels again, do all those three. Um, I managed to, and I somehow worked out that through this culture and communication, you could actually pick up art history. So I started art history my second year. So it was like a combined undergrad um, BA. So it was English language language with art history, actually. Um, But I, I can still remember now the the joy and the excitement of actually finding that out that I was able to do art history and yes then realizing brilliant I can you know I can actually get myself back down this arts route yeah yeah
0: so when you were at university were you doing lots of other extracurricular stuff or did you just focus on the program
1: in my undergrad I don't think I did really I mean when I was doing. Like you know, you look back in retrospect and think, Oh gosh, all those missed opportunities. But when I did my masters, like I say, that's when I really just tried to pick up and soak up absolutely everything I could do in terms of yeah. you know, work experience, um doing more reading around the subject, going and seeing more work. Um and I got a distinction in my masters and I think that was purely because like I didn't have any of the distractions that you do at yeah, undergrad. You said know? you were going
0: back as a mature student, so I think in, you've got that period. And I was working; been, I'd been yeah, working for Cadbury's, you know, and there's a, there's a kind of reality there of, of what the stakes are higher, aren't they? You've made yeah, a sacrifice. Yeah,
1: um, and like I say, that's why you know I'll, I'll go back now and try and. You know share some of that experience with master's students so I'll go and talk to undergrads as well but typically the MA students at Manchester mm-hmm. um, just to kind of I suppose just give something back in a way and get them understanding what the real museum world is is like mm-hmm. Um I mean I talked earlier about you know the only routine was that masters you know, I spent so many Thousands of pounds getting that getting that qualification because I had to do well, it. we have seeing
0: that on job applications, although yeah. like an equivalent an MA yeah, and MA yeah, So that
1: yeah, was yeah. So, essential. Yeah, so seeing that on job job like you know job requirements. Yeah, and there's a lot of discussion in the sector now around you know how on earth do we diversify the work for the museum workforce if we you know continually have these essential. Academic qualifications, or yeah. um, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not dismissing them at, at all. You know, it was very interesting. It gave me a really good grounding. Um, I certainly think perhaps some of the more gallery studies or or museum studies courses out there would have been better for people who weren't like me. So if you were doing curation or something mm. like that, because on my course it was all the management
0: side. Um, so you, were you attracted to that because of that? Quite practical.
1: No, I was attracted to it because it was on my Because it was there, yeah. so it was geographical. Yeah, so put, it was definitely geographical. And, I mean, if it had been totally, you know, not yeah. the right course, I wouldn't have done it. But from my perspective, it was my root in. So qualification itself was the means to the end. Yeah, it was the means to the end. I had to get into the sector, I had to have that post-grad, and you know, I mean, now, obviously, if you're you know a conservator or something that's a specialist skill, and you need that, then, you know, I totally agree, you need to be, you know, qualified to do it. But I'm really interested in the way that museums and other cultural organisations are changing it up, and looking at, well, actually, are we going to you know create a more diverse workforce and a workforce that's more innovative and bring people in with different ideas if they're a you know totally outside the sector and b Mm. they've not got as an essential yes maybe nice to have but as an essential a a degree or or an upper class degree qualification when you know a lot of a lot of people perhaps haven't been able to to afford to go and do that
0: so there's the the MA I I, th- I think the MA conversation is a really interesting and complicated uh, part of the sector in terms of entry level jobs and the other one obviously is volunteering. Mm-hmm. So you said that you'd volunteered mm-hmm. at those two venues. So were you was that as part of the course or were you?
1: No, so um, I picked up. The volunteering with Sheffield Galleries at the Freshers' Fair actually, right. um, but so it, it was there, a, kind so of the, yeah, so at the Freshers' Fair the gallery was there, and then you know, hilariously, I ended up then doing the Freshers' Fair the following year, um, and ran subsequent Freshers' Fairs myself in my role as marketing assistant. But um, it was just something I thought would be a good thing to do. And then it had only it only became very apparent that actually again that was seen as something vital, mm-hmm. and I would say that actually even now, um, I I just, I well I don't think I would have got the job without without, volu- without doing it, and I'm not saying that because you must have volunteered. We want the evidence that you volunteered, but just the skill set yeah, it experience. brought me. You know, I learned anything from, you know, how to order twenty cases of red wine for a private view and how to mail merge a inviting word through to, you know, how to write a press release yeah. or how to we had a royal visit, how to deal with a royal visit, you know, all this stuff that the kind of volunteering gave me and because I'd combined it with Sheffield Theatres as well, which was a like a totally different kind of organisation, I just felt that it gave me that edge, maybe, over other people who hadn't volunteered. My problem, and and I think it's probably the same now, is that, you know, fitting that volunteering in with other other things. But we've seen how amazing volunteer schemes are now, like, you know, with... I don't even know whether you call it micro-volunteering or online volunteering, like, with with archives. So I do a lot of work with archives... Can we run all sorts of volunteering where, you know, you're helping to tag objects? So there's lots of different ways now that you can get involved in volunteering. It's a lot more accessible. Um,
0: but those two things together must have been really difficult. You know, to, to see that those jobs had MA as an essential and knowing that reali- realistically in order to push yourself above people that had the essential criteria, you would need the additional volunteering. Mm. It's a big ask, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's a lot of time, you know. Um, I suppose you know you just think of it. Well, it's a, a year or eighteen months, maybe of of really, you know, bloody hard work, essentially. Yeah. Um. But I think I think this is why it's so important to do it because you want to do it, though. You know you.
0: the the entry level job is is so low in terms of salary that it just it's such a big ask isn't it it? it's
1: absolutely and you know i try not to think about the money side of things because i was working for cadbury's so that sales job of kind of you know 21 or whatever um i was earning something around the region of 16 to eighteen thousand pounds a year and and that was the lowest level paid yeah. of, of that. I then took a career development loan out to do my master's. And then when I got the marketing assistant role, I started on £10,500.
0: Yeah.
1: And so not only had I dropped my salary to work in the cultural sector, I was also having to borrow money to invest yeah. in, and and do it. And, you know, so it's, it's the commitment of time, it's the commitment of money. And that's why you need to, like... I think it's good to volunteer to work actually, you know, is this something I really want to do? And in a way, it's a shame, or maybe some people do, volunteer before you do the MA, and then yeah. you, like,
0: think, oh, actually, I do want to work in this, in this world. Um, An important question to ask there, then, is, as a freelancer, do you think that the, the MA is really helpful... I'm assuming that you get a lot of your work through the experience that you're able to demonstrate. Do you think it's a viable route for freelancers to go down experience only?
1: I think that I change my mind on this all the time, actually. Um, sometimes, I think, I think it will come down to which MA you have done. Yeah. So, for example, I know um, freelance colleagues of mine who have done, let's say, the Leicester course... And they have got so much more experience than me in, you know, um, acquisition and disposals. And that's actually a real key part of their freelance work. For me, I didn't do anything to do with those kind of topics. You know, like I say, it was all around the kind of the management side. I, hand on heart, don't think I've probably used any of my management skills from my masters in what I do apart from the obvious, so the marketing part of yeah. the of the program. And we had to do there's a whole big practical section where we had to run a develop and run a festival, an arts festival in a, a park in Sheffield, which was a huge project. And again just like little things like, you know, time management or again things like, you know, how to how to run a distribution campaign or how to run a marketing campaign. All those kind of things definitely contributed yeah. to my career but from a freelance side of things kind of not sure really again i very much saw my masters as a a way in and then i learned i learned more about the sector and what i do from being in it on the job because i had there's you know, an irony isn't there about having there, is, about there are, totally you know. is but i think again you know if you were doing MA in conservation or something then it's yeah, diff- it's different, it's different. Skills, yeah. Um, but I think there's, there's also it's that academic discipline as well. I, I would I, I don't think I would change anything. I think I would still I'd still like to do my M. I would, I enjoyed it. I met some you know great people. that gave me that you know that routine. Um, but yeah, there is a there is an irony
0: with it. So at that point, you're volunteering at the theatre and at Sheffield.
1: Yes, and you've
0: finished your masters.
1: Yeah, then I get the marketing assistant job.
0: So did that come out of the volunteering? did Did you apply? Did that come up, and you had to apply for it?
1: Yeah, I had to apply. Yeah, so I was against. I think five or six. Right. I mean that again. That's two thousand one ish. So that to, would at yeah, That point when significantly I higher than that now probably. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously, that like more job applications, but in terms of interviewing, it would be six, interviewed against six. But I had, you know, I was in a position where I knew the organisation. Yeah. So that probably put me ahead as well. But I ended up there, I think I spent four years. So um, that's full-time? Yeah, so full-time as marketing assistant and then I moved up to marketing officer.
0: Right.
1: Um. So, and then that role slightly split. I mean, we had... It was a great time to be working there. We had um, strategic partnerships with Tate and MPG, National Portrait Gallery. So I worked on some fantastic exhibitions like Tate's Sculpture when that came, um, Palace and Mosque. There was all sorts of really lovely shows to to work on. So that was during that four-year period I was there. And that officer role I had split into campaigns and then visitor research, that's where I picked up that interest in visitor research. Yeah.
0: So you are there for four years?
1: Something like that, yeah.
0: And did you feel that you were able to guide that role? Was it very definitive in terms of what was expected of you or were you able to turn that into something?
1: Yeah, well, that the more... research element actually came from me in that discussion. I mean, they were very flexible at the time and just looking strategically at what, what was needed and there wasn't that function in the business around visitor research and evaluation and it was something I'd... I can't remember actually where or how I'd end up getting interested in that, but um, that was, I put that forward. And so that role then got shaped into not just running the campaigns all the yeah. time, which was great. And that's, you know, led me pretty much to what I'm doing now. I just expanded that skill set. Yeah.
0: And, and the work that you're doing, obviously, with National Portrait Gallery and Tate, that's quite an, um, a baptism of fire in terms of learning how the sector works.
1: Oh, yeah, and it opened my eyes to, you know, how regional galleries work versus national. So I remember being sat in a meeting at Tate in London and talking about, you know, different ideas for the campaign and the budgets involved in their normal (laughs) campaigns compared to ours and this conversation about something around, you know, well, you know, we, we always brand our kind of disposable coffee cups and we do these all these different things and I was there as this marketing officer going oh my goodness like we've not got any budgets like that um but it was an interesting like routine for me and learning my my boss at the time at Sheffield was really um keen to encourage me to go and, and get involved with the Nationals through these partnerships so I went and was at one of the V&A lakes just as they started, um, and it was—I can never say it—forts, crystals, and jewels, and there was this theme. I that, yeah. And so I, I was involved in that evening, working alongside their kind of events team, just because there was that opportunity, because of the strategic partnership. Yeah. So I learned, you know, from the nationals, but I also learned how how different they are, you know, and. and you Know there's pros and cons, isn't there? I think when you're in a regional, certainly in my experience, when I was in a regional institution like at Sheffield, you're kind of there's you and a small team, whereas you're kind of small fish, big pond at yeah. a national. I'm not, I'm not, I've never worked in a national in a, in a permanent role, I've worked for them as a freelancer, but you know, I'm not sure kind of how that works in terms of the. Um, amount of say that you might have over yeah. something or your ideas that you were
0: put in you know um. So at the end of that four years, what, what came next?
1: Yeah so um, I for various personal reasons had to relocate back over to the northwest, which is where I'm from originally and there were no arts jobs at the time and I found myself uh, at Salford University so I kind of one of the good things I think with going into marketing was that that was a transferable skill set it wasn't like I was a curator or a yeah, real specialist real
0: subject specialism, yeah, yeah
1: so I was able to actually you know this wasn't planned but but I was actually able to like opened up other job opportunities for me so I went and worked in managing the postgraduate programs marketing at Salford University and knew that I would be staying there as, <laughs> as short a time as possible. Um, but, you know what, I'm it was... assuming that
0: you didn't declare that.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, they. the pay was obviously... I'm saying obviously, but the pay was substantially higher than the same kind of grade, like, officer level yeah. um, uh, uh, where I'd come from. And... You know, as much as I didn't really enjoy it, it gave me a massive, massive um, new skill set. You know, I was learning how to produce something as big and as complicated as the postgraduate prospectus, which is a huge mammoth job to copyright, pull together, proofread, do the brand, like, everything... Um, And it just gave me kind of an insight into another type of world, you know, academic world. Um, And again, just working for a huge organisation, you know, Sheffield Galleries and Museums Trust, as it was then. You know, I can't even remember how many staff, but we were very lucky at that point. Um, We had something like five of us just in the marketing team at Sheffield, but unusual actually that, but... You know, as an organization, maybe 40, 50 people, I don't know. But then I was in Shepherd Salford, and you know, there's a hundred, two thousand, three thousand members of staff, like you know, to, to deal with probably more. Um, so I was keeping my eye out for other arts jobs in the northwest at the time, and then a maternity cover job came up at the Harris Museum in Preston. I actually went for the marketing, they had two jobs. They put a marketing manager, well, there was a marketing and fundraising manager and a marketing and fundraising assistant. And I went for the assistant job because I didn't want to be a manager. I had no interest in management. And, um, and they refused to interview me for the marketing assistant job. Presumably, based on my experience, it could have been that, actually. they Maybe they didn't get enough people for the manager role. I never found that out. But um, so they won't mind me saying ring that. bring
0: you up and say we don't want to. I yeah, yeah. Interview for this, but we will. Yeah,
1: we want you to go for the manager job. So did you so, have to?
0: Re- do you have to apply for that? Or did they just? No, move they just moved. At, yeah, at they just
1: yeah. Over. Okay. yeah. So I went for that and ended up doing that that, that job. And so I was there for, for doing the maternity cover, but that got extended to eighteen months.
0: So there's parallels there between the Harris and Sheffield in a way because they've got permanent collections probably the size and scale of the organisation, maybe a bit smaller, I guess, than the trust at Sheffield.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was very different in terms of the governance, and right. I found that quite difficult, actually. Um, so the Harris Museum is a run by a local authority, so right. Preston City Council, and it's an interesting building insofar that, and I think this is slightly changing now, I'm not sure, but the... It's in the same building as the library, and the Harris Library is managed by um, Lancashire County Council, and the museum is managed by Preston City Council, yeah. all within the same building. And we know there's some interesting examples of that all over the place. But um, coming from a trust into a local authority, I found really difficult, and that was mainly because of the um, autonomy I'd had at Sheffield. You know, if I wanted to put a banner. Up for Tate Sculpture, I put the banner up yeah. on the outside of the building. Whereas with the Harris, it took me something like eighteen months to get a banner on the mm-hmm. front of the building. And that was, you know, that's that's just sometimes how, how it works. Um, and local authorities, you know, the, there are these processes that you know you have to go through. And you know, spending public money, it needs to be accountable, and, and that's absolutely fine. But I did find that that transition difficult yeah. um, when I'd had so much freedom. To just kind of crack on with the job um, at Sheffield. How long were you at the Harris for? Well, it was supposed to be 12 months, but then it got extended. So I worked there for 18 months and it was a senior management role. So I'd gone from pretty much marketing officer at Sheffield, marketing officer at Salford to head of marketing job with a position in the senior management team, yeah. um, which for me felt like a massive kind of steep curve upwards. Um, I managed two members of staff, so it wasn't huge in terms of a team. So I managed a graphic designer and a marketing assistant, the job that yeah. I had yeah. gone for. Um, and, you know, I didn't have, apart from the masters, I didn't have any, you know, real practical management, managing people training. You know, I'd, I'd kind of looked after volunteers at Sheffield and when I'd moved up to officer level and assistant but it was all it's all very kind of informal as this felt a lot more senior um, and so
0: did they spot that you know obviously if you've applied for the assistant and then they give you the management or the, the opportunity to interview for the management was that recognition that there might be supplementary skills or training that yeah, you might need there?
1: Yeah, so uh, they kind of put me on management training that was delivered through the council. Okay. Um, but so I, I think I'm not
0: specific to the arts. Then
1: no, it wasn't, and I think a lot of the management style, you know, and and the way you manage people, again, I just developed on the job, and I don't know whether that's that's a good thing or not, but that's that's how it worked for me. And I was I was lucky that I had, you know, the team were great, I didn't have, you know, I, I I didn't have any difficult circumstances to deal with. It was at the point, you know, there was no job evaluation being done, there weren't any redundancies happening. So I kind of got away lightly in a way before kind of Arts Cuts started happening, really. I mean, we're talking, what are we talking here, and Kind of seven,
0: yeah, so right before,
1: yeah, so and and you know that job set me up really for freelancing because I was at that senior level, I was again more visible as a you know a head of marketing person, I was out doing more strategic work, various networking. They sent me to Venice for the Communicating the Museum conference, just it opened up a lot more kind of visible. Yeah. for me to be visible in the sector. Um, doing, you know, I was doing talks back over in Sheffield, actually, and over there. I was doing seminars for North West Fair. To let, I don't know, just opportunities to be out, whereas kind of a more back-of-house my marketing assistant, yeah. I wouldn't have, you know, people wouldn't have known who I, who I was. Um, and, you know, getting asked to write pieces for... Arts professional or museums journal or whatever. Um, so it, I I like looking back. I would say you know that helped massively in terms of that profile raising of of yeah. my work and who I was.
0: And in those two specifically, the two arts jobs. This doesn't really apply to the Salford role, but in those two arts jobs, as a marketing person there, what input creatively did you have in terms of? program if if any mm, yeah so that's a really interesting tension
1: it's very big tension and it's it's interesting when I go and do marketing one thing I do as a freelancer now is I do marketing training for typically smaller museums who don't have a marketing specialist in-house yeah. and, it, and it is something actually that I think is lacking from MA courses where I've seen anyway it is all about curation and 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 that side of things rather than you know there might be one lecture on arts marketing or audience development you know and I've said to colleagues in in academia do you want me to come and do some guest lecturing around this you know or we spoke like developing audiences is such a key thing we need to do but it's just from my perspective I don't see it reflected in these courses very much so you know I go and, uh, you know, talk to people about marketing and, and do the training. And they are flabbergasted when I say to them, you know, marketing is four P's. So the marketing mix. And what, is, you know, what are those four P's? It's product, price, place and promotion. And where everyone thinks, you know, they'll say, oh, we need some marketing. And what they mean is they want a leaflet. Yeah. Or, they, you know, they don't even think about the other thing. There's always a leaflet. But they don't realise that product is a key part of that marketing mix. And so when I go and do this training, I'm talking about things like, you know, like a simple example, but, you know, developing a sensory backpack in an exhibition space because we've identified in our marketing plan that, you know, low-income families or families or whatever is your segment are a key target market. So we can't just you know, get them in and expect that, like, our job is done as marketers, it's about the product as well, it's a key part. And so, to answer your question, you know, having a seat in programming meetings, that's why, you know, you'll have marketing people clambering to be in those meetings, because they want to make sure, even if they can't influence the programme at the highest level in terms of, you know, if it's touring, exhibition, or, or you can have some influence in terms of what the visitor experiences when you get into that mm-hmm. site or you get into that temporary exhibition. Um, I mean, at Sheffield, for example, you know, the marketing team didn't have any say in terms of, you know, what that programme looked like for the next, you know, and you know this. You, you don't just programme 12 months in advance. We knew for three, four years, years in advance yeah. what, what was coming next. Where we could influence was the title of the show, and the strap line for the show. Um, but yeah, it, it was very difficult to have any other kind of input other than that. And I think that's why actually it's it's important and it's, and it's interesting to have maybe a, a marketing person at a senior level, you know, who mm-hmm. sat in on those senior management meetings who can go, okay, so, you know, ask the why questions. So at Harris, you know, on the senior management team, there was me, there was the head of learning and then um, the like, head of operations. And so, you know, and programming people saying, well, this is what's coming, or this is what we want to buy in. And me, my role very much there is to question and say, well, why? Who's the target yeah. audience? What's this going to do in terms of our vision and our objectives as an organisation? So having that person there maybe helps. But it is, it's, it's, it's always a tension.
0: So at the end of the Harris... Um, did that just come to a natural conclusion because it was maternity cover there? Did that just come to an end, or did you make a decision to leave?
1: So I had a very, um, I don't know whether it's unorthodox actually, because people get into freelancing all over like for lots of different reasons. But I had a colleague. I was on annual leave, and I had a colleague from Sheffield who'd moved into a an arts job in Manchester who phoned me up and asked if I knew if anyone who might want a press officer job uh, she was recruiting. And I kind of felt like I'd, you know, I'd learned a lot at the Harris. I'd, you know, um, I was kind of feeling ready. It was ready and time to move on and do something different. I'd not thought of freelancing right. at all. I'd not like thought, right, I'm going to go freelance next. And for some reason, I just said to her, you know, would, rather than part-time, would you consider a freelancer? And I think part of me, probably in the back of my head, was thinking, oh, could I use this opportunity to do a few different things and start exploring what I think they call these days, you know, a portfolio career. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she said, yeah, and by the time I went back after my leave, she'd got a contract for me and and I handed my notice in, and so I started working for her, and, and it was at Contact, which is a theatre in Manchester, I went and did, kind of worked out about two, three days a week for six months. Um, It wasn't structured like that, but that's kind of what it worked out as. And then I just built everything else up um, around that. So that totally, you know, launched me into freelancing. But I very quickly had to develop, you know, my own brand, work out what I was working on, you know, tell people I'd gone freelance. Whereas most people who are sensible probably have, you know, at least a business plan in their head, even if they don't have it written down.
0: So was that a scary experience, that transition, or did it just feel natural?
1: It just felt natural, and people have always said that to me, oh, I don't know how you, like, what you did. And <laughs> I think I think it's because I have always had a job of some description, you know, from being 16, working in a health food shop and then going and working at Boots... In the back of my head, I just thought, if it didn't work out, I would just go and get a job anywhere, yeah. you know? Um, and I was 29, I think, when I went freelance. Um, and this comes back to, um, like, what I was saying earlier about, you know, are you a consultant? Are you a freelancer? And at that point, I just thought, I've only really worked in the sector for, what, eight, seven, eight years You know, and, and like, surely I can't call myself a consultant, but I I kind of very quickly found, like, this niche in a way where there were a lot of consultants going into organisations and advising and kind of parachuting in and parachuting out. And whereas I was doing a lot of the practical doing stuff, So, you know, I'd get brought in to do things like a press officer job or, you know, run a marketing campaign or those practical, tactical elements that, you know, there wasn't really anyone else doing that on my patch. Um, And then, you know, I ended up working all over the country, not just in the North West, but... And it's interesting, I'm working with an organisation at the moment in, in a freelance, you know, as a freelancer, who have gone back into a council government system from being... A trust originally and yeah. working with them has been quite interesting seeing seeing the change and the things that their stuff have to deal with and yeah I think it's I think I was ready and I think it was that flexibility and freedom I mean there are so many things I love about being freelance and the benefits that being freelance brings and it, it, it is and I was excited at the start until I'm now about you know the different types of organisations or clients I get to work with, when I can work with them, when I, you know, when I work, when I don't work. And that was just such a revelation after being in that system Mm. where it was very regimented. You clock in. Huge freedom. You clock out, you build up your loo time. And I always say to people, you know, it's it's little things that make the difference to me as a freelancer where, you know, if I want to go, have to go to the dentist. I will go to the dentist whenever I want to. So yeah, it was. It was wasn't scary. Um, it was freedom, flexibility, working on a on a big portfolio for me. That was really interesting.
0: So you mentioned much earlier on about um, having a business coach.
1: Yeah. So that was something that I never thought I would investigate. And that came about because I think it must have been the 10 year, the 10 year itch. I, I kind of woke up in, in January last, last year. And I just didn't quite feel that same excitement about stuff. And I thought, you know, if you're running your own business, you've got to be like, you know, committed and want to do it. And I thought there's something not quite right here. And so I I've always thought business coaching and life coaching was, you know, something not for me. And um, I'm, you know, that kind of stiff up a lip. I'm running my business absolutely fine, thank you. I don't need any help. And um, I met um, this guy, he's called Simon Sellingman. And he he's actually works, um, does a lot of, did a lot of work for Chatsworth. He was actually in the cultural sector himself as a freelancer. And then he decided to move out and do his life coaching and business coaching training. And then years pass, and then I'll kind of bump into him at something. And then um, I ended up having a, a an initial meeting with him, and just saying, you know, there's something not oh, I can't quite work out what it is. Um, I think I'm a bit bored. What you know, and and so I ended up doing six sessions with him, and it was just super useful. And he'll you know he'll say it's like holding a mirror up against because you know. you, when you're freelance, you don't. There is a lot, you know, of people struggle with isolation as a freelancer. Mm -hmm. Often you're working on your own. I go and do co-working. Other people find different routes to to deal with that. Um, But you've got no one to kind of say, oh, do you think this is the right thing? What should I do next? Is this client okay? So through that process with Simon, um, I've, you know, I've, changed so much about the way I run the business actually in the last 12 months so again just getting to that 10-year stage and following that I've done my rebrand I've gone down this whole route of reassessing what my values are Mm. which clients I take on and which I don't getting better at saying no which is a huge thing for freelancers because you don't want to say no you don't know when the next job's coming along um you don't want to to appear that you're too busy, so that word spreads that oh, don't talk to her because she always said no because yeah, she's always busy. Yeah. Um, but I've got myself in a bit of a pickle with not saying no in the last kind of three years because then you just take too much yeah, on, and you that you know that yes. really affects you and it affects your client work. So um, I've got better at saying no. I've got better at um, being strict with things like not answering emails all the time, turning emails off, making sure you properly have holidays, you book things in. Loads and loads of stuff that I just thought I was doing well at, which actually I wasn't. And it's simple stuff like feeling guilty about going and having your lunch outside the office. And I think we probably all have this in, you know, standard jobs too the fact that actually you do a whole load of better quality work if you took half an hour out for your lunch time or stopped faffing around on social media and just went and ate your sandwich outside in the fresh <laughs> air and walked. You know, like... But there's this interesting thing to play with around permission, you know, and that sense of, you know, as a freelancer or anyone, you know, who are you waiting to get permission from to do that? You know, I will give myself permission to go and have a sandwich outside and take half an hour out. The world is not going to collapse. Clients are not going to, you know... Not talk to me ever again if I take half an hour out. And it sounds stupid, even saying it. But you you do feel guilty if you're not there all the time for mm-hmm. clients twenty four seven. Um. So it's really helped. Kind of guide not only what I'm offering, what I'm doing, um, but also that health and well being side of
0: things too. So you're a company of one.
1: Mm, yes, that's right. So. I think it's there's actually a book called Company of One that I've been reading recently from uh, this guy called Paul Jarvis, and it's really interesting because it reflects how I feel about freelancing. and And he kind of he talks about how actually, you know, he doesn't want to expand. I mean, I have, you know, I I turn down work quite a bit, and that's not me kind of being big headed saying it. I I, tur- I turn it down, and people say why don't you just hire someone in and then, you know, just, like, grow your business? But I'm not kind of... You know, I don't do it to turn into a Richard Branson, you know. I'm <laughs> not... I, I don't really want to grow the business beyond, you know, the means that... You know, I'm I'm getting, you know... A, 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 I'm earning enough to live, to do the things I like doing... I don't, you know, I'm not motivated by having to earn any more than that. And everyone is different with that. You work that out and then for me, you know, I, that's fine. I don't want to grow and have four members of staff and then have to start dealing with, you know, paying them and PAYE system H-H-R. and HR yeah. and all that. And I don't want to become some kind of agency and, and that's purely from that pragmatic, logistical point of view. But it's also because, and again, this this isn't, you know, saying this in a big-headed way, but I very firmly believe that people buy people. And, you know, like, with freelancing, people buy me. They don't buy, you know, they don't buy me for my approach and the way I work and, yes, my skill set and all the rest of it, but it's about if you get on mm-hmm. well with that person. There's a lot with freelancing to make a project happen successfully. And so if I was to send, you know, whoever I'm appointed in my place, I just don't, I don't think that would, that doesn't reflect yeah. like me and, and that's not what I, how I want to run the business. Um, so yeah, it's interesting that that book's a really good example of that because that, that guy has done exactly that. He, you know, once he actually reaches the, you know, the money he wants to earn in that yeah, year, he the doesn't. The t- yeah, end. he done then doesn't. I, doesn't brave, have any clients it's then? It's quite
0: a brave thing. There's a continual pressure, isn't there, to do more and more, and especially when if you feel that's in your control and you're pretend, potentially turning down work. That's mm. but quite it's interesting, a difficult challenge. It's
1: interesting to play with, though. And me and Simon, my coach, have been talking about. Well, actually, how would you feel if you know you weren't working? From September to December. Yeah. And when I'm saying weren't working, I mean client projects. So last year, I took the whole of August off. And I'm going to do the same this year. And when I say take August off, same with that September to December example. I mean off client projects, but time to work on side projects, the business, get
0: website. You, get your in order.
1: Get my shipping order. Um and but it's still that, working.
0: That's the, it, yeah. It's having, interesting that you talk about that as in not working because it's yeah. It, we, it's a pause from relentlessness. It is, the it relentlessness is of it's being.
1: totally working, and um, Simon would be slapping my wrist if he heard that because we I mean we call it non billable clients. Yeah. You know, and I have like this Trello board. Trello um, is a really useful kind of way to structure your projects and um, all sorts of stuff. Um, and you know, I have business development as a as a list alongside all my other client projects. And that kind of comes back to what I was saying at the start of this around, you know, it's not just about the client work, it's about, you know, your admin and your marketing. So the C P D and the you know, the business development comes in that all the different things you have to do as a freelancer, but that's what You know, this guy, Paul Jarvis, you know, that's what he would do between, you know, once he reaches that peak of what he wants to earn, he'll go Go and he'll build, build his client base, but like maybe do some writing to raise awareness. You know, I, I'll write my blog or I'll pitch for, you know, um, a conference paper or something like that things that perhaps you don't get that time to do when you're really busy delivering. Yeah. I mean, freelancers try to block out, you know, one day a month or half a day a week to do this other stuff, but it's mm. so easy to let that slip. And so it is fun to kind of start playing with that idea, though, of, oh, actually, well, I could I take September to December, in quotations, you know, off yeah. to work on... Maybe my you photography, think, my own creative practice, not just yeah. you know, some of these other things. So some side projects. And is that okay? Or is that gonna leave me <clears throat> will I feel we we talk about it feeling drafty, you know, those drafty, like, oh what's next? What's next? Or or will there still be work out there? You know, are people gonna forget who I am? But then you think, well, you know, if you are doing writing and you're, you yeah, know, going, you're actually attending all the, emotion. it's different, and, and as a freelancer, you have that choice of, well, it's down to me what I take on or not. But I, you know, I, I should stress, you know, I'm in that position now where I've been doing it a long time. Well, I
0: wouldn't. That was my question. That was going to be my question. <clears throat> do you think that you could have, you could have done this, optionally five years ago, or do you think that this is a either, the the way in which you've developed your client base to have those choices, but also the perhaps the age you are as well, where you're making different life choices.
1: I think it's probably a bit of both. I mean I don't I don't think in my it would be like any business, you know, you wouldn't suddenly in your first year think, right, I'm taking six months off. Mm-hmm. I don't think you would. But I mean you you look at there's a really great um it's not museum sector but great freelance Community called Being Freelance. It's got like a vlog and a, a podcast, and Steve Folland runs that. And uh, he talks to freelancers all over the world. And there's like this, there's these nomad freelancers, you know, who will who work as they're traveling, and yeah. like all these different kind of um, models of, yeah. of, of freelancing. But I, I honestly don't think in my first year, I, you know, freelancer would build their business and work very hard for that first you know year, eighteen months, two years, maybe even longer and i i needed it to build that buffer that i was talking about mm. um so i think i don't think i would have been able in the mindset to think oh actually i could do september to december off or something like that but what i definitely did was block out that regular time each week to do the non billable work for you. because otherwise you you become unstuck you know you, you'll get unstuck with your finances and your admin and all the rest of it. And I, I think there's a couple of things that have got me to the point I am in terms of being successful and managing to still be here after 11 years and whether the arts cut storm as a freelancer is is that kind of having the time out to self-market, you know, or, you know, promote yourself. And, and I suppose it comes a bit more naturally to me than others because I do marketing work or did do... Um, and also joining up with other freelance associates to work on projects together. And that's, again, building that up, and that's been a massive um, kind of influence, not just on my client base and and the clients I've got to work with, but also develop my own skills as well. So, for example, um, I worked on a project at Silverstone. So Silverstone, I think this year or next year, is it next year? They're um, launching a new visitor attraction at the circuit. And I worked on it's um, partly Heritage Lottery funded or National Heritage Lottery funded, I think I should say now. Um, And I worked with two other freelancers on that. One of whom was um, an archivist. And that was the first time really I'd worked properly in archives. And so to just learn from her, uh, you know, I've now gone work with archives by myself, you know, on on different projects. So I think that's also helped just build up that kind of client base and that grounding in what I do.
0: Hmm. So what advice would you give somebody that was thinking about developing a career path that had similarities to the ones that you've outlined? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I don't know whether anyone would would follow a
0: deck, so deck, collection right?
1: <laughs> debt collection to freelancer and I, I you know one of my colleagues at Sheffield um who I'm still very good friends with now you know he, he laughs about it and he said you know you went straight from you did volunteer marketing assistant mm. marketing officer marketing manager freelance within the space of a very, you know very short time
0: so I'm not sure whether anyone would would follow the same one but in terms of advice around... Oh, but I am particularly around advice relating to, to a career as a freelancer. Yeah,
1: and this is what I talk to the students about at Manchester when I go and do my, like, my careers lectures. And I do think, actually, and, you know, there, there are opportunities to even go into it from being a student, you know, from being, like, doing an MA. I don't think people realise that they probably are. I mean, there are, depending on what area you want to work in, um, yes, the, the fee might be slightly like lower, but I, I spot freelance contracts out all the time. I think actually that would suit a graduate who was coming yeah. out. And um, Ipsy, which is um, the... Let me get this right. I always get it wrong. Independent professionals and self-employed. Um, it's kind of the association of the body for freelancers working in all sorts of sectors they do so much work at the moment with universities talking to students about the opportunities to be self-employed and I think it's just raising awareness that it is an option yeah. um but from an advice point of view I think it's you know freelancing is isn't for everyone and I think one of the issues we've seen with the cuts is that people default to it and think you know, oh, can, out of a
0: necessity you Out of a the necessity.
1: Right. And I know I went into it in a bit of a, an odd way, but it isn't for everyone. It can be, like I say, isolating. Um, and so, you know, advice around that is to get out, you know, go and join a local co-working space. Set one up if there isn't one already. Um, making sure that you don't lose touch with all these kind of networking and private views and everything, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's not for everybody, as well, because they can't, you know, they can't deal with the uh, irregularity of the work and or the cash flow. Um, and there is a quite a huge problem, actually, not just in our sector, but elsewhere around um, paying freelancers on time,
0: yeah.
1: and the, the problems that can cause. And a lot of people, you know, even practically, they, they're not great at Talking about money or asking for a particular fee or knowing what to charge or following up on an invoice that's not being paid—they don't feel quite comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So again, like you know, advice from that you know that side of things is to make sure that you have your systems and processes in place and um, to know your rights around that kind of thing. Again, think like a business. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are just like, oh, you know, it's it's a museum you know they've not got much you know not got much budget and oh I'll give them a bit of leeway with that Whereas, actually it's your business you know yeah. they are a bus- your business as well um but it's easy to be kind of a bit kind about it i don't know if it was i don't know like starbucks or amazon or something <laughs> would you necessarily be doing the same feeling the same um and then i guess like a lot of people you know aren't going to be suited to the so the, you know, dealing with the health and well-being side around being, like, how much you want to be in, on call or not, or you've got to be so super organised. I'm yeah. a list person, as you've probably gathered. Um, so for me, you know, I am, that, that's kind of one of my strengths. I know who I'm working with when, I've got my diary up to date. But if you're not a kind of, if you're a bit haphazard with <laughs> your admin and things like that, then it can make it a little bit harder. I, I totally... I think if it's, if it's something that you're interested in, I would perhaps... And if you're in a full-time job, I would perhaps be tempted to see if you could reduce to part-time and then try course. it on the side. Or if your contract allows, and not all contracts allow, you know, could you do some freelancing whilst you're working full-time. You've got to bear in mind there are implications with that from a kind of tax HMRC perspective, but um, potential implications, I should say, depending on how much you're earning. Um, Just to kind of see if it suits you or come along to, like, we have Museum Freelance Network events. We have, you know, we're doing one at Museum Next Conference in um, a few weeks in, in June, um, open again not just to people who are freelancing but people who are thinking about freelancing there's all this kind of freelancing community that you can dip into online so freelance heroes is another one again not culture specific but I would say that you know if you're a freelancer don't just tie yourself into those networks that are just museum and cultural sector there's so much you can learn from freelancers working in all manner of you know sectors Um Uh, like across the board, um. So yeah, just like hooking with those really. So, are there any
0: other things that you can do to promote yourself as a freelancer?
1: Yeah, I suppose apart from the, the kind of, thought pieces or writing that I talked about. You know, something that's worked really well for me is going and doing some public speaking and again it's not for everyone um but it's and it certainly wasn't for me either and it's a skill i've had to kind of get better at still not quite there but um actually going and speaking at conferences and picking the right conferences or seminars where you think either you know you can bring something of value to it um or you know there are people that potentially might be interested in giving you work i think one of the things that freelancers struggle with when you go to conferences and it's a real shame is that you'll introduce yourself as a freelancer or consultant or whatever and people automatically think you want to sell them something and you can see them scurrying away to the tea stand or excusing themselves from the conversation but actually I would say you know freelancers are there for their CPD as much as anything else and you know they want to join in the conversation and they want to network but when you're doing like say if you put in a paper or Something for a conference. I spoke at audiences connected in Vienna a couple of years ago, which was great. And people, if you're if you're bad at networking, it's a really good thing because people come up to you. You don't have to go and talk <laughs> to them, and they'll say, "Oh, you know, interesting talk" or whatever. Um, so, I'd certainly say, you know, go out, get out, and see if you can, you know, share some of your, you know, work out yeah. and about whatever kind of conference it is.
0: I could imagine that there's a tendency to be quite protective because i have seen things in a competitive way whereas almost everything that you've been talking about is about being open and sharing
1: yeah and that might just be my my way (laughs) and it's not my way or the highway but i think i think we're very very bad at sharing in the
0: sector i was going to say it's very reflective we i think quite often we talk about museums or galleries or those kind of sites being in competition for visitors Mm. so we think of it as a a finite number that we have a share of rather than thinking about how do we potentially grow?
1: Yeah. And I think there's slowly a tide turning with that. Um, I see issues with that in evaluation, especially. Mm. So when I go into my evaluation training, one of the first things I do is a bit of a soapbox about what's wrong with evaluation in the cultural sector. And um, one of the things I talk about is um, advocacy and you know, when I go and actually do a piece of evaluation for a client, I always say, you know, it's a warts, what I call a warts and all evaluation. It's not an advocacy piece that's like, yeah. we're amazing. Yes, there might be things in there about what's worked well, the successes, of course. I mean, it's, evaluation is all about assessing whether you've achieved what you want to, wanted to do. But a lot of evaluations do tend to be very celebratory. And one of the issues, you know, arising in, and why that happens is because people... No, you know, well, there's two things. Often funders don't, um, you know, provide that final payment until they've seen the evaluation yeah. report. And funders are getting better at saying, you know, we want to know what's failed as much mm-hmm. as what's worked and why. Um, so, so there's that. But the other side is the competition side that you're like, referring to there of, you know, why would you put a report that says, well, everything went wrong... And why it went wrong when you're in that competition zone with everyone. So there is a bit of that at play. But from my perspective, I think the sector would be much better for more sharing and more honest sharing of um, kind of ideas as much as kind of evaluations. But that's why I like conferences like Museum Next, because it is that kind of community and culture of sharing and learning together and you know not reinventing the wheel. I just think if we did a lot more sharing then we'd be better off
0: for yeah. it for, for very many reasons. Thank you very much for your time too much this fantastic amount of stuff there
1: You're very welcome. thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast don't forget you can follow us on twitter instagram soundcloud and facebook using the handle cultural peeps and if you want a bit more information about the careers pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com